What Turkey is trying to do in, in Syria today is curbing the influence of the Syrian Kurds. And that has become, in fact, the backbone of not only Turkey's Syria strategy, but Turkey's regional strategy. Hi, this is John McElligot, your host for this episode of the 1CA podcast. We're joined today by Gunal Tol. She's the founding director of the Middle East Institute's Center for Turkish Studies. She's also an adjunct professor at George Washington University's Institute for Middle East Studies. After three years of field research in Germany and the Netherlands, she wrote her dissertation on the radicalization of the Turkish Islamist movement Milis Gurus in Western Europe. She was also an adjunct professor at the College of International Security Studies at the National Defense University. She has taught courses on Islamist movements in Western Europe, Turkey, world politics, and the Middle East. She has written extensively on Turkish, Turkey-U.S. relations, Turkish domestic politics, and foreign policy in the Kurdish issue. She's also a frequent media contributor. Ma'am, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. We wanted to talk about what you're focusing on these days. What are you writing about? Well, mostly about Turkey and what Turkey is doing in Syria. Uh, recently, Turkey launched a military incursion into um, the northwestern Kurdish enclave. It's called Afrin. Uh, and it's a major concern, especially for the U.S. and the U.S. military, because um, the U.S. is there working with the Syrian Kurdish militia, and that's called the YPG. And Turkey at the moment is attacking the YPG forces in Afrin. Um, and recently, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan threatened to move into Manbij. Manbij is another Syrian, uh, northern Syrian uh, town that is under the control of U.S.-backed Kurdish forces. And there are also around 2,000 U.S. Special Operation forces uh, in Manbij. So if Erdogan uh, del delivers on his threat and moves into Manbij, that could potentially... Uh, that there's a high risk of a clash between the U.S. And, and Turkey. So that's what we mostly focus on these days. Why do you think the average American should care about what's happening in Turkey right now? I think um, mainly because what the United States is trying to do in Syria is it's trying to confront the radical Islamist movement, uh, Islamic State in Syria. Uh, and it's working with uh, the Kurdish militia uh, there. And what Turkey is doing in Syria, the, the Syria policy that Turkey pursues, uh, has a direct impact on what the U.S. is trying to do in Syria. So uh, what Turkey is doing in Syria is important for the U.S. national security interests. Yeah, I've read a lot about that in the last couple of years. And uh, the Syrian civil war has been going on now for quite a while. What do you think would be the turning point over the next six months or a year, uh, considering other players like Russia as well? Well, uh, it's very difficult. Uh, in 2011, when the uprising started, many uh, uh, experts as well as uh, intelligence organizations, they thought that uh, Assad only had six months. 
because he didn't have the backing of the majority of the population. He was only backed by uh, the, the, the Alevi minority. So people thought that, that he could not survive longer than six months, and that hasn't really happened. So it's really difficult to predict what will happen next in Syria. But what I see is um, because of Russian involvement in Syria, as you know, Russia uh, militarily involved in Syria in 2015, and since then I think turned the tide in, in, in the Syrian conflict. So the regime uh, gained a lot of territory, captured territory from the Islamic State and from the opposition. So the regime at the moment, the Assad regime, is, is quite confident that it will control all um, the territory that it used to control before the Syrian conflict started. So I think at this point, um, I'm not hopeful that the Syrian opposition can put up a real fight. So that means uh, probably with uh, Russian backing and the backing of, of Iran and the Shia militias there, the regime is going, is going to win. Uh, again, they now, they captured a lot of territory and through diplomatic means as well, not just through military means. Um, they have uh, European countries, I think the majority of the international community now resign themselves to the fact that Assad will not go, so he will, he's here to stay. And uh, the main priority of international actors is to contain uh, the Islamic State, and that's why toppling the regime is not a priority anymore. So when you combine that with the fact that uh, the regime is, is gaining militarily on the ground, I think the picture gets uh, clearer that the, the regime will not be toppled and, uh, and also we have to talk about the state of the Syrian opposition. Uh, they were in a better place a few, few years ago now. Their international backers are not uh, supporting them. They are not providing them uh, logistical aid, financial aid anymore. Um, they are very divided, uh, and the international community uh, has, uh, they have their own suspicions because there are many radical groups inside the Free Syrian Army. So all these factors make it very difficult for the Syrian opposition to put up a real fight against the Assad regime. So that's why, if I had to predict, I would say that uh, the regime would, would probably win this war. It's connected to uh, something you presented in 2015. You spoke at an MEI event and discussed Turkey's two objectives in Syria. The first was toppling the Assad regime, which you've mentioned is unlikely now. And the second was preventing a Kurdish corridor along Turkey's southern border by marginalizing the Syrian Kurds. Could you talk about the background of the, of the group Syria? Who are the Syrian Kurds and what's the connection to Turkey? Well, as you know, this, this, the, the, the Kurds are actually the biggest minority that do not have a state. Um, there are around 30 million Kurds in the region, and they are spread across different countries, Turkey, Iraq, Syria, and Iran. And they are a marginalized group, because in the countries that they live in, they are suppressed. Um, in Turkey, for instance, the 20% of the population is of Kurdish origin, 
and yet uh, they are still struggling. In fact, they've been waging a war against the Turkish state since the 1980s. Uh, so they want uh, more political, social, economic rights. And the Kurds in Syria, they are at a better place because uh, since the first Gulf War, uh, thanks to the no-fly zone established by the United States and the international community, uh, they have an autonomous region and um, what started as a de facto autonomous region became uh, a, a real autonomous region after the second Gulf War. So they have their own military, they have their own parliament, they have their own resources. So they, have, they are the ones, the Iraqi Kurds are the ones who have come closest to becoming a state. And in fact, they held a referendum in uh, September 2017, an independence referendum. Unfortunately, it failed because all international actors, including Turkey and the United States, were opposed to the referendum. So they have become, they're very fragile. Their uh, project uh, for independence is, is quite fragile at the moment. And the Syrian Kurds, uh, again, they, uh, they are uh, oppressed by, by the regime. And until um, uh, the Syrian conflict started, they did not even have ID cards. Uh, so if you do not have an ID card, you cannot be, you can't benefit from the services that the state is offering. So they have been very marginalized as well. And in Iran too, there is a sizable Kurdish uh, minority. Uh, and in all these countries, um, in Turkey for instance, there is a, a, an organization that is considered a terrorist organization by Turkey, the US and the European Union that is called the PKK. And it has its sister organizations in uh, in Syria, in, in Iraq, uh, and uh, in Iran, uh, their headquarters are in Iraq. Uh, so Turkey has been waging a war against the PKK, and it considers the YPG. The YPG is the group that the United States is working with, cooperating. Uh, they have become uh, an important ally in the fight against the Islamic State. So in, uh, the United States considers the PKK as a terrorist organization, but technically the YPG, which is the PKK's Syrian offshoot, is not considered a terrorist organization by the United States. So that loophole created a lot of tension between Turkey and, and the United States. Um, and Turkey thinks that uh, there is no difference between the YPG and the PKK. Um, and um, what do you think? Well, I think they are the exact same organization. They have the, uh, they share the same ideology. It's a Marxist-Leninist ideology, uh, and they uh, they have they have the same leadership. Uh, and in terms of uh, micromanaging daily affairs, uh, the YPG might have some autonomy from from the PKK, but I think they are the exact same organization. Uh, so that's why Turkey has been quite concerned about the fact that um, after the Syrian conflict started, the YPG uh, started establishing this autonomous region in, in northern Syria. Uh, so that's why Turkey is now, uh, Turkey's number one priority in Syria has become not toppling the Assad regime, but confronting the YPG and curbing its influence uh, in Syria. So why does, why does Turkey even care about the YPG? Do they hold strategically significant land or could, you know, or economic interests? Why? It's, it's a very, Couldn't Turkey just forget about it and leave them alone? It's a very good question. And you know, in, in Washington, D.C., we, 
talk about all different other things, but you don't want to actually ask this question. So it's a very important question. Um, I personally believe that the YPG does not pose a threat uh, to Turkey. The PKK does, obviously. The PKK it's a it's a terrorist organization and has been waging a war against against Turkey since 1980s. But not the YPG. But Turkey considers it as a national security threat because the YPG started. Um, so in 2011, and that was when the Syrian conflict started. At the time. Turkey had very close ties to the Assad regime. President Erdogan uh, was friends with President Assad. They even vacationed together, and Turkey had invested heavily in Syria. Uh, visa restrictions were lifted. Uh, the two countries held joint cabinet meetings. Turkey, there were many Turkish companies, construction com companies operating in Syria, and Syria became Turkey's gateway to the rest of the region. So Turkey had very close ties, uh, cultivated close ties to Syria. So that's why when the Syrian conflict started, Turkey did not immediately join the anti-Assad camp, thinking that uh, Erdogan had leverage over Assad and Erdogan thought that he could in fact force Assad to carry out reforms. But of course that did not happen. So after a few months, Turkey uh, came to terms with the fact that Assad was not going to leave and joined the anti-Assad camp. And when that happened, and Turkey did not only join the anti-Assad camp, but it became an organizational hub for the Syrian opposition. So in retaliation, the Assad regime allowed all the PKK leadership who have been living in exile in Europe to come back to the country and basically gave, it, gave a free hand uh, to establish an autonomous region in northern Syria. And that's when Turkey, Turkey's uh, threat perception was heightened. Turkey, Turkey thought that um, Assad is going to allow the Kurds to establish a continuous autonomous region which might link uh, uh, to the Iraqi Kurdish region so they will, the Kurds will have access to the Mediterranean. And that's a major threat for Turkey because they think that if there is a continuous Kurdish autonomous region that has access to the Mediterranean right there, right on my southern border, then maybe my own Kurdish community will seek will want uh, similar things. So that's why Turkey is uh, turned its attention to the Kurds in Syria. So initially, uh, Turkey's number one focus in Syria was to toppling the regime. Now it's become a secondary, uh, and maybe it's not, it's, not even, uh, it's not even on Turkey's agenda anymore. So what Turkey is trying to do in, in Syria today is curbing the influence of the Syrian Kurds. And that has become, in fact, the backbone of not only Turkey's Syria strategy, but Turkey's regional strategy. So Turkey is trying to do that in Iraq with the Iraqi Kurds. Uh, and that affects its, that, that has shaped Turkey's relations with, with Russia. That's the main reason for the Turkey-Russia rapprochement. That's the main reason for Turkey-Iran rapprochement. That's the main reason for the, the problematic relationship between Turkey and the U.S. So that fear of Kurdish separatism has be, become the backbone of Turkey's foreign, foreign policy. It's interesting you talk about the, the connection there with Russia as well, and because I, I wanted to ask you the regional power plays, and I was reading uh, Peter Zihan's predictions for Russia, for Turkey and focused in three areas. One was Concord or Ally with Romania and Bulgaria. 
Two, secure oil from Kurdish Iraq or Azerbaijan. Three, show interest in possibly retaking the Crimean Peninsula to the effect of being recognized by Russia as a regional power in that lower Danube area and securing national gas exports. So there's the southern border that Turkey is focusing on heavily, Mm -hmm. but what else do you see going on with its neighbors and where else is drawing, what, what other areas are drawing Turkey's focus right now? Well, um, again, I think the, the fear of Kurdish separatism is um, it's, it's number one on Turkey's foreign policy agenda. And that's driving its relations with Russia, with Iran, with Baghdad, uh, with Syria. And it's even creating tensions with the Gulf countries. Uh, and Turkey had close ties with, especially with Saudi Arabia. Uh, so currently with Russia, I think Turkey was so frustrated with the United States that the U.S. chose chose to work with the YPG that it turned to Russia in Syria. Um, because it was obvious for a long time the expectation in Turkey was that it was the Obama administration decision. So a few folks within the Obama administration made that decision. But once Obama is out of the picture, President Trump would have a different policy and would have a more favorable uh, policy. So that was the expectation in Turkey. But the opposite has happened. Trump, in fact, took a, a, a major step and decided that that the Pentagon would directly arm the YPG. So that was a step that Obama was reluctant to take. So that's why Turkey's hopes were were dashed. And and so after Turkey realized that that Trump would not change US's close close cooperation with the YPG, uh, Turkey figured that that it could only it had to work with Russia, it had to work with Iran, and it had to work with the Syrian regime. Because the main thinking behind that strategy was was that um, Assad does not want an autonomous Kurdish region. He wants to control the entire country. Uh, and Iran, it has its own Kurdish minority, so they are as well vulnerable to a Kurdish autonomy project, so they might work with Turkey. And Russia, if Turkey... Um, delivers on uh, other issues uh, that Russia might be willing to curb the Kurdish influence in Syria. So that was the expectation and that's why Turkey cultivated close ties with these countries, with Russia, Iran and even with the regime. So now they have become Astana partners, uh, so they established a mechanism in uh, in Astana uh, Russia is leading the diplomatic efforts there. It's trying to find a solution to the Syrian conflict. Um, and uh, Turkey has been signing deals uh, to create de-escalation zones in Syria. Uh, so through those de-escalation zones, in fact, uh, the Assad regime is gaining more territory. But Turkey is okay with that as long as all these countries, Russia, Iran, and and the Assad regime, turn a blind eye to what Turkey is doing in Syria against the Kurds. So, um, so th- th- that's that's why I'm I'm saying that that its fear of Kurdish separatism has become the number one driver of Turkey's. Uh, relations with its uh, neighbors. With Russia, there are several other issues, important factors. Uh, Turkey is dependent on Russian energy. 
Um, and also in 2015, you might remember this, um, Turkey downed a Russian jet because uh, Russia violated Turkish airspace. Uh, and that became a turning point and it was a wake-up call for Turkey because right after that incident, Russia deployed S-400 missiles in Syria and also imposed economic sanctions that hurt Turkish economy a lot. And economy is President Erdogan's soft belly. Uh, and took other measures that really uh, made Turkey quite vulnerable. So Turkey realized that, that it could not afford to alienate Russia. So since then, Turkey has been trying to cultivate closer ties. For instance, Turkey... Um, uh, is pursuing, is trying to purchase S-400 missiles from Russia and that has pissed NATO off for obvious reasons. Um, and many in Washington are talking about a strategic shift in Turkey's foreign policy direction and um, a shift away from the West and NATO to, to Russia. I don't think that is the case, but Turkey is working closely with Russia. With Iran, again, it's working closely in Syria with Iran, but I don't think that is um, that is a strategic shift either, because there are also issues that are dividing these countries. Uh, they are not on the same page on everything, and they are competing for influence in Iraq, uh, in Syria, in the region in general, so there are limits to, to their cooperation. In Iraq, um, Turkey had very problematic relations with Baghdad, with the central government, uh, for, for several reasons. For many years, Turkey had very close ties with the Iraqi Kurds and signed energy deals without the approval of Baghdad, that, that angered Baghdad. Uh, the Baghdad officials thought that Turkey was meddling in internal affairs. Uh, now, uh, Turkey has tense relations with the Iraqi Kurds and trying to cultivate closer ties with Baghdad. But Baghdad is, uh, there are just too many suspicions in Baghdad uh, towards Turkey. And with the European countries and, and the US, I talked about the problems in Turkey-US relations. The YPG is one of them. Uh, another uh, problem is the extradition of an Islamic cleric. His name is Fethullah Gülen. Um, there was an attempted coup in Turkey in 2016 as a marginal group within the Turkish military orchestrated a, an unsuccessful coup. And Turkey immediately accused this Islamic cleric who lives in, who has been living in Pennsylvania since 1999. And right after... Uh, the was there any evidence that that was the case? Sorry? Was there any evidence that that was the case, that Turkey was correct and that he had a hand in it? Well, it's, it's very difficult because we know very little. Obviously, uh, there is not publicly available information. Uh, but I, I believe that, yes, he has followers within Turkish military and I think they played an important role in orchestrating the coup but I don't think they were the only actors. They were also uh, officers who have been very uh, concerned about what Erdogan is doing to the country right. and they are uh, they are more secular and western oriented. Which is uh, the tradition of Turkey to yes, be secular, exactly, right? Exactly. So there's been this evolution that I've read in the last five, ten years that Erdogan has taken over more control and yes, that's uh, right. it concerns a lot of 
Turkish members. Yes, that's that's right. And uh, so the, uh, Turkey requested his extradition, and the U.S. response was that you have to uh, provide hard evidence linking him directly to, to the coup attempt, and Turkey has failed to provide that evidence. And now the decisions are the decision is up to the courts. Uh, so that's why Turkey is not quite happy with the U.S. That's another issue that is haunting bilateral relations. And of course, Turkey's relationship with Russia and the S-400 deal and uh, some other incidents that took place in 2016 Turkey arrested uh, local employees of a U.S. mission in Turkey and other American uh, citizens. So those are all, all the issues that have become very problematic. And with the European Union too, there are several uh, other uh, issues. So um, to sum up, Turkey in its foreign policy has become very, very um, uh, marginalized and isolated. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 1CA is under the umbrella of the Civil Affairs Association, a 501c19 veterans organization. People can support the podcast through tax-deductible donations. Money raised will be used to send junior NCOs and officers to two events hosted by the CA Association. The first is a symposium held each fall. The second is a roundtable and workshop held in the spring. Each junior NCO and officer selected will also receive a membership to the CA Association. If you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit the CA Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. That's civilaffairsassoc.org. And please remember that all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for your support. Hi, and welcome back to the 1CA podcast. Gunnar, could you talk about... Uh, we, we mentioned briefly there the secular history of Turkey. It's been a crossroads, an ancient crossroads for land-based trade, a mix of people from different regions coming through there. What has happened to that secular foundation? Uh, how has it shifted over the last several years? And what do you think is the future for secular society in Turkey? Let me refer to a recent public opinion poll conducted in Turkey by a center for, by a think tank here in DC uh, called Center for American Progress. So according to, I'm not um, 100% about the numbers, uh, I'm not 100% uh, sure about the numbers, but I think around 80% of Turkey's population um, now think that uh, being Muslim is the main marker of their identity. So that's a major transformation because Turkey, um, although secularism has been a top-down project, so we had the founding fathers and it was the founding fathers' uh, vision to establish a secular society. That vision was not very much in touch with uh, the people because uh, the people have always been very conservative, very religious, pious. But I think the, the Kemalist project, Kemal, Mustafa Kemal was the name, the name of the founding father. So the Kemalist project was to transform Turkey uh, from a, a, an Islamic, conservative, uh, Middle East-oriented society to a Western, modern, secular society. Um, and I think that project had uh, its own problems because it alienated uh, it alienated uh, the, the pious people, it alienated different ethnicities like the Kurds. Um, so the ruling party is the result of that 
uh, alienation because they came to power saying that this is a country that is largely conservative and we represent the people. So they presented themselves as a, a bottom-up project and that's why they have been very successful. And over the years since they came to power, they managed to transform society and that's why today we have those poll results that people identify themselves with their Muslim identity. That's a significant transformation. Yeah. And I think... And your family's there. So you, you, you were born there and your family's yes. still there. Uh, outside of the polling results, have you seen that as well? Has your family talked about the shift? I have. And I come from a family... Uh, uh, my, uh, my mom covers her head and she's, she's a religious person, but she's always voted for uh, the, the secular parties. Um, and she is a big fan of the, the founding father. So her religiosity is more cultural. And so it's not it's not uh, a, a type of political Islam in a way because she thinks that that politics is corrupt and you shouldn't really religion should not be part of religion uh, part of politics. But now uh, they, they they talk about they see more people covering their heads. They see yeah. more people uh, talking about. Uh, Islam and as their main as the main marker of their identity, but I think this is also different. This is a different type of religiosity, because now we have a large middle class. So uh, the religiosity of the 1980s, 1990s were it was different. Uh, so those were the marginalized people who uh, who had been oppressed by by the Kemalist secular system. Now they are driving fancy cars and women who are wearing the hijab, the headscarf, they go to, to France for fashion shows. So it's, it's become a fusion of that consumerism and, and religiosity. So in terms of lifestyle, a woman like myself and a woman who is wearing a, a headscarf, in terms of lifestyle and the taste, uh, they have become similar. Very different from uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, yes. which is uh, much more conservative and yes. now has recently allowed women to drive mm -hmm. and has changed uh, how they can dress in public. Yes. So it sounds like Turkey's evolved in, a, in the opposite direction, always had sort of this conservative roots, but yes. has been now showing it publicly, and you say connected to the large middle class. Yes, exactly. So religiosity is on the rise globally, so not just in Turkey, but, but yeah, Turkey is, is not an right. exception. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the underbelly of Erdogan's government. Who are the main trading partners for Turkey and what are those big industries? The European Union uh, is the biggest trading partner. Um, Turkey and the European Union signed uh, a customs union agreement in 1995. So they have become very close um, trading partners. Um, but under President Erdogan, especially construction companies, they have become very active. And after uh, Erdogan came to power, although the roots of that uh, uh, go back to the 1980s and 1990s, but um, it became more of an important factor under his rule. So he made trade as an important component of his foreign policy, especially his Middle East policy. So for instance, on his official visits to countries in the Middle East, there were hundreds of businessmen who would accompany him. Uh, so because he thought, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with um, 
uh, with the, the social science literature that says uh, if you trade an economy, uh, tie countries and societies together and it decreases the likelihood of conflict. Uh, so I think he, 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 he followed that, that logic. So he built very close trade and investment ties with the countries in the region. Uh, for instance, there are hundreds of Turkish construction companies operating in northern Iraq. Uh, there are hundreds in, in Africa. So trade and investment have become important component, an important component of his foreign policy strategy. But these days, especially with the European Union, I mean, there are many problems. So that uh, I think uh, that affects uh, uh, the, the, the trade dimension as well. So you talk about the construction, uh, a lot of projects that are happening in neighboring countries in, in the Middle East. Does that mean that there's a large pool of skilled labor in Turkey? You know, the university system pretty strong there. Um, in the U.S., we talk a lot about STEM programs. Um, do those types of science, technology, engineering, math programs exist in Turkey as well? No. Uh, and I think Turkey was on its way to get there, but not anymore, because the country has become... So Erdogan, um, he is engaged in a social engineering project. So he wants to raise a, a pious generation. So he wants to create or recreate the society in his own image. And to be able to do that, education is the key. So that's why education has become very ideological. For instance, um, first graders are learning about the term jihad in schools, and that wasn't the case when I was uh, a student uh, in Turkey. Wow. Uh, Kemalism, secularism, so those were the core issues that we used to discuss in schools. And now it has become, the curriculum has become much more Islamic. And with that, of course, comes a decline in the quality of uh, education in science and, and, and math. And he recently, Erdogan, promoted um, uh, local science. And that there is no such thing. The very meaning of science is it's global, it's universal. If there is a fact, so if science is, the main aim of the science is, is, is finding out the facts, there are not many facts. There might be different interpretations, but there are not many facts. So you cannot make science local. But now that's his vision. So that's why I'm, I'm um, sad to say that this, but uh, in terms of science and technology and the quality of education, uh, there's been a backslide in that. Yeah. Gunal, I wanted to close by asking a question about the migration of people in the region and, and those people leaving Syria. Uh, you've studied, and I think you've written about this in the past, uh, how many Syrian migrants have been living in Turkey and how has Turkey responded to the influx of people uh, living in its borders now? Well, there are around 3 million Syrian refugees in Turkey. Uh, that's a large, very large number. Right. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons is that Turkey shares a long border with Syria. And the second reason uh, uh, is that Turkey pursued an open border policy after the Syrian conflict, to its credit. And I think the Syrian immigrants, uh, their uh, conditions are not great, 
but I think they are uh, far better than many other Syrians living in different parts of the region. Um, and recently, President Erdogan, for his own political calculations, but still I give credit to him for doing that, he's, he has granted uh, citizenship to uh, 500,000 Syrian refugees. Of course, the expectation there is uh, that they, once they become citizens, they will vote for Erdogan. Uh, but still, I think that's a major step in terms of improving the lives of those people. Because once you become a citizen, obviously, you benefit from the health and the, the education and, and everything else that the state is offering. Uh, so I think um, the state has done a, a decent job in terms of uh, uh, accepting and trying to integrate them into the whole society. But like everywhere else, there is a, there is a nationalist backlash and the societal tension is is mounting, um, especially in the border towns, which host uh, larger uh, Syrian immigrant communities. Uh, we see the, the, the violence is, is increasing. There are an increasing number of attacks against the, the, the Syrian refugees, um, and the people are uh, they in public opinion uh, surveys they identify the Syrian refugees as the number one one uh, threat uh, to uh, the economy to the to the security, uh, and it's it's difficult to uh, contain that. Uh, and I think that's why Erdogan is now talking about sending back those three million refugees back into Syria. Uh, and he talked about that in length, arguing that we are capturing territory in Syria so that we will create safe havens and so that these people can return their homes. Where would you recommend that uh, members of the civil affairs community or anyone else listening to this episode should go for additional resources or updates about what's happening in Turkey? Um, well, Brookings Institute is, is, is a great think tank and they have a very um, good Turkey program. Uh, Dr. Kemal Kirishchi is a very well respected uh, Turkish academic and he is leading the program there, so I think he would be a great resource. Fantastic. Gonotel from the Middle East Institute, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure, thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.